Okay, so this week's Torah portion begins in middle of a conversation. The conversation started at the end of last week's Torah portion. And what is the conversation? So the story is that Moses went as God told him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh doesn't uh, react favorably. And he actually makes it much worse for the Jewish people. He stops supplying them with the materials they need to make the mortar and the cement. And all of a sudden, the Jews are having to meet their quotas with all this extra work. And Moses turns to God and says, Why have you done badly to this nation? You sent me to bring redemption, and instead I brought even greater suffering. So at the end of last week's Torah portion, God begins his response, and he says, as the verse says, and God said to Moses, you will now see what I will do to Pharaoh, because with a mighty arm, I will, he will send them, and with a mighty arm, he will banish them from his land. That was the beginning of the conversation. And now, in this week's Torah portion, the conversation continues, and it begins with, by Yedaber Elakim El Moshe, and God spoke to Moses, by Yoimere Elov, and he said to him, Ani Hashem, I am God. Okay. So we have to understand this verse. <laughs> what does it mean, I am God? Like, really? I mean, they had that conversation at the burning bush. So Rashi brings one interpretation that says, I am God. Whenever God uses that name, what he says is that I am trustworthy of keeping my promise. So you will find those words by God telling us that if you do this mitzvah, you'll receive this reward, Ani Hashem, I will reward you. You also find this concerning sin and retribution, that if you do this, I will punish you, and I am God, meaning that I keep my word. So what's really happening here is that God is beginning to explain to Moses why this is happening, and we're soon going to see that. However, I want to just point out for a moment that there are 10 names of God, most famously amongst those 10, there's the seven, which have a specific category of holiness that you're not allowed to erase them if written. And one of them is Elohim. Now the name Elohim, all these different names, they relate and refer to different attributes of God. There are some that is the name of compassion. There are some that's the name of kindness and some that's the name of justice. The name Elohim is a name of justice. It is used when God is speaking harshly. Hence, we know that God was speaking to Moses harshly for the way Moses questioned him. And nevertheless, Moses questions him. Now, I'm going to explain this in a moment, but I'm going to share teachings. However, 
let's first see what he what is God saying to Moses. appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Shakai, with the names Kale and Shakai. But Ushmi but my ineffable tetragrammaton name, I did not reveal to them. Parenthetically speaking, Kabbalah and Chassidus want to know how can God say that if clearly we have more than once that God reveals himself to Abraham with the ineffable tetragrammaton. And the answer is that when we say the 13 attributes of mercy, you'll remember from the song that we sing on Yom Kippur, Hashem, Hashem, Keorachon, Vechanon. So we started twice, Hashem, Hashem. There's two ineffable tetragrammatons. One is the lower one, which relates to creation, as we're soon going to explain. And one is the higher one. And what God is saying is that the higher name, I did not reveal to them. Okay, what's going on here? What's going on here is that God is explaining to Moses why there is this process. And what he's explaining to Moses is that there is going to be an unprecedented revelation and relationship that's going to now be forged between God and the Jewish people. And that is the purpose of all this suffering. And we need to understand why suffering. But first, let's understand what is this relationship. So I said to you that the verse says that God said, I revealed myself to them with the name Kale and the name Shakai. Now, I'm pronouncing both those names wrong because you're not allowed to say these names in vain. So to spell it out to you, the second name is not Shakai with a K, but rather with a D. S-H-A-D-D-I. Now, if you think of that word in a moment, if you think of that word in, its, in the way it's properly pronounced, you will recognize that the word relates to that famous song in Passover, die, die, yenu, die, die, yenu. The word die means enough. And what does the name, this name of God, Shin Dalet Yud, the S-H-A-D-D-A-I, what does it stand for? Our sages tell us that it stands for God telling the world enough. Now, what does that mean God told the world enough? So to understand this, we need to know that one of the hugest discussions in Kabbalah and Hasidus is how did it come to be from the infinite light, a finite world? Infinite creates infinite. A piece of infinite is infinite. And for that, they explain that there is the two levels of the divine light, the infinite light as it relates to the world. One is the infinite circular light, which cannot permeate the world because the infinite circle cannot fit into the finite vessel, the finite world. So therefore, it always remains elusive, circular, and encompassing. However, then there is the finite linear light, which is able to shine into this world and be able to permeate it, each level at its own capacity. Hence, the word shin dalad yud, that God is saying enough, 
what God is saying is he's now opening up for the finite. So now let's understand what is truly going on here in this answer from God to Moses. God is telling Moses that until now, I am only revealed and related and communicated with beings and creation through the linear finite light. Hence, the verse tells us, Hashemayim Shemayim Lahashem, the heavens are unto God. Kabbalistically speaking, that means the infinite circular light. But Vaha'aretz Livne Adam, the earth was given to mankind, simply meaning that over here there was only the finite linear light. However, God is telling Moses that I am preparing the Jewish people to now enter into a communication and a relationship with me, which is beyond the finite linear light. Hence, the first three words of the Ten Commandments is, Anochi I, Havaya, ineffable tetragrammaton, Elohim, the name of nature and finite contraction and concealment. And what that means is that while the 10 utterances of creation, the divinity of mother nature is about the linear finite light, the 10 commandments is about the circular infinite light. I'm sorry, the 10 utterances are the finite linear light and the 10 commandments starts with the word anochi i it's the infinite circular light and even more so it is the source of light and even more so it's the essence itself so because by studying torah and by doing mitzvot we are not only connecting to the finite linear light which gives the sustenance and life to mother nature but rather we're connecting with the essence of God. We're connecting to the infinite circular light. Therefore, God is telling Moses, I need to break through the coarseness and the arrogance of the separation identity of creation so that they will be able to open up and receive the higher revelation. And now it will no more be the heavens belong to God and the earth belongs to, to mankind, but rather now we'll be able to fulfill the verse that the glory of God, the ineffable tetragrammaton, God himself, fills the world. Now, what does it mean that God has to first go through the suffering. We have to go through the suffering to break the arrogance in order to be prepared to be able to receive the Ten Commandments, the divinity of God himself. So to understand this, I began last week sharing with you that when Moses first comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, who is Havaya? Who is the ineffable tetragrammaton that I should listen to him? I don't know him. Now, what we're really saying is, according to Kabbalah, 
Pharaoh is saying, I only know the finite linear light. I only know Elohim. I don't know about any ineffable tetragrammaton, infinite, circular, miracle, essence. I don't know that. I don't relate to that. And I don't want to acknowledge that. Hence, in the Haftorah of this week from the book of Ezekiel, God prophesizes and he refers to, Ezekiel prophesizes and God tells him and refers to the Pharaoh as Hatanin Hagadol, the great, some say crocodile, the great snake that roams in the forest and says, It's my forest and I created myself. In other words, what Pharaoh is saying is, I only relate to the, the, the finite linear light, which allows for me to be a somebody and see myself as a power. I don't relate to the infinite circular light, which leaves me to be but naught and transparent and open and humble and self-nullification to God. Now we understand what we're about to read here in these 10 plagues. All of these 10 plagues is about breaking that arrogance, breaking that identity of self-centeredness. Yes, there is a God, but I am me. From that perspective of, yes, there is a God, but I am me, we will never be able to stand at Mount Sinai and receive the I am God, your God, meaning that I, essence, Havaya, ineffable tetragrammaton, is what truly lies hidden within Elohim, the divinity of Mother Nature. So yes, God has allowed us to be us, but it's our job to clean the mirror, turn it into a see-through glass, a magnifying glass, which allows us to see that within us is nothing more than we are a piece of God. In order for us to see that, we're going to have to first go through a crushing of the ego and the arrogance, which doesn't allow us to see that. And that's what this Torah portion and next week's Torah portion is all about. The process of the 10 plagues is all about breaking through the arrogance so that we can be humbled and open to acceptance. Now, now that we understand what God is telling Moses, let's go further. Then he says, go tell the Jewish people and he says over here, four terminologies of Exodus. And I will take you out from under the oppression of Egypt. And I will save you from their labor. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And I will take you for me unto a nation and I will be your God. Now, these four terminologies 
according to one opinion in the Jerusalem Talmud, is the source for the four cups of wine that we drink on Passover. However, you will know that on Passover, we don't just drink four cups of wine. There's another cup of wine, which while we don't drink it, we specifically pour it. And that is the cup of Elijah. And the reason is because after that, four terminologies in the next verse, it says, and I will bring you to the land. According to our sages, that word, and I will bring you, doesn't really refer in full to the exodus of Egypt, but rather it refers to the exodus of Mashiach, the final redemption. Hence, it's the cup of Elijah, because Elijah's job is to come and reveal to us that the time of Mashiach has come. Now, going a little further, God, again, the verse says that God, that Moses did what God said, and he spoke to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people did not listen to him. Now, the Torah says a reason why they didn't listen to him. From short, shortness of breath and hard work. In other words, they were in a state of lower being. They were in a state of survival. They were in a state of the reptilian brain. Hence, they were not able to hear the possibility of redemption. Now, what's important for us to understand here is something that we need to learn to embrace more. And that is non-judgmental. The verse clearly states that God is not judging us for not being able to hear and believe what Moses is telling us. Rather, God is explaining to us what we're going through. Now, imagine if this would have happened in today's day and age, how many excommunications and how much gossip and how much judgmentalism there would be. How could they not believe Moses after Moses showed them that he turned the staff into a serpent and he turned his hand into leprosy and he turned water into blood. He gave signs, he told them and God said, that's what would be going on today. The power of being able to understand the other person, not when the other person is right, but when the other person seems to be wrong and to understand that other person, why they are the way they are, and not only for you to understand them, but to declare it the way God declared it for eternity in the Torah, that is divinity. That is spirituality. Very easy to judge others. Spirituality says, don't judge others, understand others. Let's go further. God tells Moses to go ahead and to talk to Pharaoh, go talk to the Jewish people, right? And Moses keeps on saying again, and basically what he's saying is that I can't talk 
because I have Aral Sifasayim sealed lips. I shared with you last week that he had a speech impediment because of a story that happened with burning hot coals when he burnt his tongue and his lip. Let's talk about this from a Kabbalistic point of view. So today we're going to get a little bit more into it. I mean, we all know the story of the Swiss Torah portion. Every Passover we go through it. Let's get a little deeper today. So what happens is that we know that Moshe is called Moshe because Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh, called him Moshe from the word Minhamayim Mishisihu. From the waters have I drawn him forth. Let's get Kabbalistic. In Kabbalah, there are two, and Hasidis, of course, there are two categories of creatures. There are land creatures and there are sea creatures. The difference between the land creature and the sea creature is that even though all land creatures have come forth from the earth, as we see in Genesis, and God said, let the earth give forth. Let the, it's always about the earth giving forth. And not only that, but even after they were created from the earth, they need their sustenance from the earth. Hence, the food chain will always get down to the earth. So there's the minerals in the earth, which feeds the plant, which feeds the animal, which feeds the human. So it all boils down to the minerals in the earth. Nevertheless, the land creatures do not live within the earth. Mystically, spiritually speaking means that we do not live within the consciousness of the divinity that creates us. We live struggling with this abstract concept called God. We don't live within it. Rather, we live from the outside connecting to it. Not so ocean creatures. Ocean creatures live within the waters. So when God said, let the waters give forth fish, the fish remain living within the waters. So much so that there is an opinion in Jewish law. We don't follow that opinion, but there's an opinion nevertheless that says that if you're holding on to a fish tightly, when you go to the mikvah, which means that the water won't be touching your hand, the fish will be touching your hand. There's a law that that is a kosher going to the mikvah because fish is part and parcel of the water. It is the water. Hence, what that means on a mystical level is that the higher souls, which are called the creatures of the ocean, they are part and parcel. They are absolutely transparent. They live within the full consciousness that they are nothing but an expression of divinity, of God. They are nothing but a piece of God. Just to share with you, practically speaking, what that could mean to us. Once a year, we have Yom Kippur. And on that day, we live in total spirituality. To the best of our abilities, we're not eating, we're not, uh, we're not having marital relationships, we're living as spiritual beings. And we try to the best of our capacity 
not to talk during those services, to be conscious of who we're talking to, to be conscious of God standing up every time the ark is open. We're trying our best to step out of self and become God conscious. That day is so difficult for us. Imagine having to live that day all year long. Now you understand a tzaddik's relationship with God. So they are sea creatures. So when we say that Moses is called Moses because from the waters has he been brought forth, what we're really saying on a mystical level is that Moses is a sea creature. Now let's go further and understand why he has sealed lips. Another way of Live, of, of understanding this mystical dimension between land creatures and sea creatures is that land creatures are the letters of speech of God. Speech is what you give out. The sea creatures are the letters of thoughts of God, which means it's within. Hence, for a sea creature to be able to be expressive to a land creature is a great challenge. And Moses is saying, I am sealed lips. I am a sea creature. I cannot truly be able to embrace the paradigm of the land creature and be able to express in a finite, um, separated form of expression, my connection with God. Hence, God is telling Moses, yes, and therefore you will have Aaron. And hence, Moses keeps on saying that I am sealed lips. By the way, parenthetically speaking, just to appreciate this, the only time when Moses did not speak with a speech impediment is when he gave over the direct words of God and hence, our sages tell us that Moses wasn't a prophet, which means God talks to him and he talks to us, but rather Moses, the words are God himself spoke through his voice box. And hence, the Jewish people knew that what Moses is saying is coming from God because they see that it's not him talking. There's no speech impediment. So now we have a greater understanding of what's going on here. God, the divinity, is being given to Moses, the sea creature, which can totally absorb the miraculous circular infinite light. Moses is giving it to Aaron, who is the connector between the sea creature and the land creature. And hence, he's able to give over the word to, to Pharaoh. Now... All of a sudden, the Torah comes to a short stop and starts getting into the family line. It starts with the oldest son, Reuven of Jacob. Then it goes to Shimon, and then it goes to Levi. In Levi, it gets detailed down to the family of Moses and Aaron. Now, Obviously, the Torah is giving us the, the um, yichas, the uh, family tree of Moses and Aaron. But why does he start from Reuven Shimon? 
and Levi? Why doesn't he go just straight to Moses and Aaron without getting into the whole family of all, of all the families of the tribe? Rashi tells us a very beautiful insight. Rashi tells us that the reason is because at the end of Genesis, when Jacob is giving the blessings, Ruvain he rebukes for moving the bed, his bed. Shimon and Levi, he rebukes for their anger. Hence, the Torah is purposely going to go again into the detail of Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi to let us know that even though Jacob rebuked them, nevertheless, they are from the holy 12 tribes of God. Now, another interesting thing is that the only one in all of this lineage that we know the age is Levi. By Levi, all of a sudden, it tells us that he lived 137 years. Why? And the answer is because the suffering for the Jewish people did not begin until the 12 sons of Jacob all passed away. Pharaoh didn't have the audacity, so to speak, to start the trouble while they were still alive because their righteousness protected the Jewish people. The one who lived the longest, who died last, was Levi. So by telling us how long Levi lived, we can figure out how many of the 210 years there was suffering because up to then there wasn't suffering. Now, I wanna just point out some interesting things which don't have to do with the story, but it's really interesting. So it tells us that Aaron took Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, the sister of Nachshon. Now, since when do we have to bring down the siblings? In the Torah, you always use parent. More specifically, when you're talking about lineage, you bring the father. So it should have just said, and Aaron took Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav. Why does it tell us the sister of Nachshon? An interesting law we learn out from here. When you're looking into a wife, look into who her brothers are. Interesting. Boitkin ba'ache ha'em. See who the brothers of this girl is. Then our sages tell us, because there's an interesting, this is very interesting, there's an interesting relationship between the uncle, the maternal uncle, and your son. Your sons are very likely to grow up like, your mater like his maternal uncle, which is really interesting. You know, if you get into it, a boy comes from the mother, the, the son, the daughter comes from the father, according to, that's why it says, by Dina, the daughter of Jacob, by the 12 sons, it says that the sons of their mother. So there's an interesting concept here. I want to point out to you another interesting, nothing to do with this story, but really interesting two points. It tells us who Aaron's son married. Aaron's son, Elazar, married the daughter of Putiel. So interesting enough, Putiel is one of the seven names of Jithro. Now, by the way, just to tell you a cute joke, they say, why did Jisro have seven names? Because he had seven daughters. And after every wedding, after every marriage, 
he had to file bankruptcy and start over with a new name. That's a joke they tell in yeshiva. But he has seven names and the Talmud tells us why he has each one of these names. So according to what I just told you, that Allah married the daughter of Putiel, who is Jitro, Yisro, you now know that the uncle and nephew were also brother-in-laws because Moses married the daughter of Yisro. Moses is Allah's father's brother. So an uncle and a nephew are also brother-in-laws, which is interesting and people don't always pay attention to this. It will play a role into the next character I'm about to introduce you to, and that is Pinchas. Pinchas is the son of a Lazar. So Pinchas has a very, very interesting, beautiful um, pedigree, if you use that on, on humans, because his paternal father and grandfather is Aaron the high priest. His maternal grandparents, amazingly enough, is Jisro and Joseph, which is really very interesting. This is going to play a role later in numbers when Pinchas kills the person who was committing adultery. But now I want to just share with you something that is important for us to know right now, which is that why is the verse telling us that Pinchas was already born? Because it will play a role in why when his father, his uncle, his grandfather, and his brothers become Kohanim, he remains a Levi. Because when God tells Moses after Mount Sinai that you should make Aaron a Kohen, the word is Aaron, your brother, his sons, and his grandchildren, which will be born. So the one that was already born wasn't a Kohen. So Pinchas wasn't a Kohen until in the book of Numbers, God gifts him with making him a Kohen. Now, let's go further into the story. So Moses goes ahead and he, tell, and he goes to Pharaoh and, and, the God, and, and the Torah tells us the age of Moses, which is Moses was 80, Aaron was 83, when the story of the Exodus begins. Now I want to share with you another mystical insight. So we all know that there's 10 plagues. We also all know that as a introduction to the 10 plagues, a miracle takes place. Moses throws, I'm sorry, Aaron throw, throws down the staff. The staff turns into a snake. And then the sorcerers in Egypt do the same, turns into snakes. Then Aaron turns his staff back into a, a snake, back into a staff. The others, the sorcerers do the same thing. And lo and behold, a miracle, Aaron's staff swallows their staffs, not as a snake, but as a staff. So we're having miracles within miracles. Now, the question in Hasidus is, why this prerequisite? You're about to do 10 plagues. Why do we have to have this miracle of the staff? And here is an unbelievable mystical insight of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch. He explains like this. What Moses and Aaron were telling Pharaoh is, 
as we mentioned before from Ezekiel, yes, you are the serpent, the tanin hagadol, the ultimate arrogance. And as we know, the serpent is the symbol of sin from the first sin. Hence, we know that Pharaoh is really the depths of impurity, contamination, separation, arrogance, ego, and yada, yada. What Moses is showing Pharaoh is something amazing. You should know that the serpent comes from the staff. Now, what does this mean? So number one, according to Kabbalah, the staff was a piece of the, was from the tree of life, the ultimate holiness and purity. Another teaching in the mystical teachings is that the word mate also means to incline, to draw out. Also, the word mate is also called a shevet, and shevet also means to shoot forth, like the, the kochav, the sharbit uh, kochava, which means a shooting star. Hence, the mystical interpretation of the staff is that it is a ray of light of holiness and purity. By showing Pharaoh that the staff turns into a serpent and the serpent turns back into a staff is letting Pharaoh know that there is only the oneness of God because even evil creations and evil existence, ultimately speaking, it comes from a holy source because God is everything and everything is God. Hence, they're telling Pharaoh, we know that you think that you are the ultimate impurity, but you should know that really you come from holiness through contractions and separations and everything, but you come from the staff. You come from the tree of life. You have evolved into the impure snake. And then Moses and Aaron shows Pharaoh that what's going to take place now through these 10 plagues is that you will turn back into a staff and be once again reconnected to divinity. Hence, when it comes to the splitting of the sea and everyone died and the verse says, there did not remain until one. And our sages say that the until one means that there did remain one. Pharaoh made it out alive. What it says over there is that God says, and Egypt will know that I am God. How can Egypt know that I am God if Egypt was just killed? So the answer is that what God is saying that ultimately I will break the arrogance of the staff, of the snake. It will reunite with the staff. And hence Pharaoh makes it out alive. And I want to just tell you that according to our sages, the story of Jonah that we read on Yom Kippur, that the king of Nineveh commanded everyone to do teshuva when he heard the prophecy that God is upset. According to our sages, the king of Nineveh is this Pharaoh. So hence, ultimately, the 10 plagues completely accomplished their mission, completely cracked away the 
crust and the peel and then the shell that locked in the serpent to be separated from its original source, the staff of the tree of life. Now, let's go further. So, God tells Moses, tell Aaron that Aaron is the one to take the staff and to hit the water and turn it into blood. Now, if we remember correctly, God told Moses, you will do it and Aaron will be a mouthpiece. So why is it that all of a sudden we have, we have these opening, um, we, have, we have these opening plagues that are happening through, um, through Aaron. And here we learn out an unbelievable concept. Do not throw rocks into the pond from which you drank. The water was there when Moses needed to be placed in a basket and hidden when he was three months old. Don't hit the water. So the water and the frogs that came forth from the water, Moses can't hit. The third plague, which is the lice from the earth, the earth was there when Moses had to hide the Egyptian body that he killed who was hitting and, and torturing the Jew. Don't hit the ground. Hence, the first three plagues are performed through Aaron. How important it is, you know. I want to share with you a quick story. Uh, well, yeah, timing is running here, but we all know the Passover story. So let's get to the deeper stuff. I want to share with you a very interesting story. The fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, whose name was Rabbi Shmuel of Lubavitch, he did someone a favor. And the person asked him, Rebbe, what can I pay you back for the favor you did for me? And the Rebbe Marash answered something so peculiar. He said, don't do anything for me. Just don't hurt me for the favor that I did you. What is that supposed to mean? So I heard an interpretation from a chassid. Really beautiful. He told me what Sidim used to say. He said, what the Rebbe Marash was telling this person is that you're going to be humbled that I saved you. So you're going to have to find a way not to acknowledge that I saved you. So what are you going to do? You're going to say, ah, he did it for me. He did it for himself. I happen to benefit. But really, it wasn't for me. He was doing it for his own selfish reasons. Okay. That'll keep you comfortable for a while. But then you're going to be plagued again. So what if he did it for himself? The bottom line is that I would be nowhere if he didn't save me. He saved my, my skin. So you're going to have to start retranslating the story, how really he didn't even help you. Because the way he did it ended up hurting you. Because it could have been much better for you if he wouldn't have done it that way. So now, not only are you not grateful to the person for what he did for you, but rather because of your shame and ego, so you're going to have to redefine history 
until you actually make it that that guy not only didn't he do you good, he actually ended up harming you and hence you have to get even with him. And hence you have to not talk to him no more and hence you have to be bad to him. Now I wanna share with you, this may sound far-fetched, but I cannot tell you how many times this happens. I will share with you, of course, no names, no nothing. In my personal life, sitting in the position of service that I do, I was gifted to be able to help certain individuals in a most fragile position. And I've learned to respect that one, I'm just gonna talk about one person for a moment. The person barely talks to me today. And I now understand why. Because looking at me, he doesn't see me. He sees the fragility where he was, the neediness that he had, and now he's not there. And by the way, I'm sure that other people can say this about me and I might not recognize it in myself. But it takes a deep godly command to tell you, Moses, don't hit the water. Recognize what was dear for you in your most primal moments of need and survival. Remember it and don't ever treat it badly. Very interesting insight. Let's go ahead and move along in the story. So just to let you know, every plague, not every plague, the last two not, but the first eight plagues all took a month. For three weeks, um, Moses was told to warn Pharaoh, and the fourth week is when it happened for a week. Now, I wanna share with you my own thought. It is interesting that in order for the plague to end, Moses, ha a, a Pharaoh has to tell Moses, please remove this from me and I I'll listen. After Pharaoh does that, the plague doesn't end. Moses has to pray to God. And in one of the verses, it actually says, Vayitzak. He didn't just pray. He was screaming to God. Vayitzak, from his depths, praying, please take away the suffering from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians. Now, I find this, I haven't seen this anywhere. Take it at face value. I find this so deep. I find that God is forcing Moses to have to pray for his nemesis, his ultimate enemy, because God is teaching Moses, if you want to be a leader that represents me, you're going to have to know how to pray to those who hate you and who hurt you. Not two, four. Those who hate you and those who hurt you. You're going to need to find that even though he's promising he's going to change and you know that he's not going to change because you've done this last plague and the plague before, find a place from which you can understand him. Find a place from which you can hear that when he says he's going to change, he means it. He's just powerless, but he means it and be able to pray for him from that vantage point.
So I think it's deep that it isn't just Moses warns in the name of God, Pharaoh doesn't listen, Pharaoh gets punished, Pharaoh finally crumbles for a moment, and the plague ends. No. Pharaoh tells Moses, please pray for me, and Moses prays for Pharaoh. Now, another interesting insight. When it comes to the frogs, the verse says, and Aaron hit the waters, and out came a frog, singular. Our sages tell us something amazing, that only one frog came out of the Nile. So how did they end up being frogs all over? And the answer is because the Egyptians, our sages say, oh, really? You're going to bring a frog? We'll kill the frog. And they kept on hitting the frog. And every time they hit the frog, it was multiplying and multiplying. Now, here is such a beautiful lesson. You know, when we get into our limbic system, our emotional brain, where there's no logic, you can't be spoken to, no one can reason with me, I'm just a total tantrum child. At that moment, it is important to realize what we're doing. Fool, stop hitting the frog. The frog is not multiplying on its own. But we're so blinded in a rage. How many of us spend tens of thousands of dollars in court in order to just prove a point? Because what you're going to get back is only a verdict, which the guy can't afford to ever pay anyway. And the amount of money you're spending on this is, is, is far beyond tenfold of what you're trying to get. But it's a rage. We can't stop hitting that frog. Interesting lesson. Now, I want to share with you another teaching. It says that the frog jumped into the ovens. They literally were on a suicide mission just because God said that the frogs will be everywhere. So there's a question asked. We are taught that the law is that if we have non-kosher meat, we should feed it to the dogs. We can't eat it, feed it to the dogs. Why feed it to the dog? Because the dog deserves a reward. What is the reward it deserves? Because when the Jews left Egypt, it says, None of the dogs were growling. Therefore, reward them. So this person gave me a beautiful Dvar Torah. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. The frogs jumped into the oven. Don't give them no reward. Don't feed them. The dogs, they just didn't growl. And for generations and generations and generations, feed them. Why? <laughs> and the answer he gave me was beautiful. He says, from here you see that it's easier to jump into an oven than to keep your mouth shut. I cannot tell you how deep this answer is. Let's go further. So when it comes to the lice, all of a sudden the sorcerers say, uh-uh-uh, Pharaoh, this isn't sorcery. This is the finger of God. Now to understand this, we need to understand what sorcery is. Sorcery truly exists. It's not today's type of magic. It's real. It's not sleight of the hand. There is sorcery. It, it did exist. And in some places, there are still instances where it exists. Now, the way sorcery works is, is because the people, the sorcerers, are communicating 
with spirits and with demons. So these are true existences because in Genesis we're taught that on Monday, some say that, but my opinion says Monday, God created the demons and the, and the evil spirits because that was the day of separation. Remember, he separated the waters. Either way, others say Thursday, but either way, what we're taught is very interesting that sorcery, these spirits cannot have any effect on any creature that is smaller than the size of a barley. Hence, when they saw lice, they realized this isn't sorcery. It's impossible for this to be sorcery. This can only be the finger of God. And yet Pharaoh remains hard. Now, at the point of at the point at the point of the wild beasts, we now see after that Pharaoh is starting to have a serious crack in his arrogance. And he's starting to negotiate with Moses. But Moses is not negotiating. Moses says, what's what God wants us to do. We need to leave. We can't bring sacrifices in Egypt because you guys consider these animals deities. So we're going to have to travel for three days. And Pharaoh says, not happening. So there was a moment and then a regression. And then again later, there is the plague of the uh, animals dying. There's the plague of the boils. There's the plague, the last plague in this week's Torah portion is about the hail. Now, I wanna just tell you one thing about the hail. God said that anyone who's going to bring his animals and his, his livestock into the barns will be saved. And there were those that did it. So there were those that were already not as evil they were listening to what Moses was saying. However, our sages tell us that these are the very Egyptians that later had a relapse and gave their animals for Pharaoh to be able to chase the Jews to the Sea of Reeds. Interesting. Now, and it's very interesting because, you know, we know from addiction recovery, you know, there, there's what they call the white chip wonders. The white chip wonders are the people that only picked up one white chip and they never relapse. But we do know that there is a process. There are many that don't get to be a, a one white chip wonder. There's the relapses and relapse doesn't mean you start over. It's a big process to go through this back and forth. It has to be massaged. And even for the one chip wonders, a lot of them are sober, but not recovered. They're what we call dry drunks. Because this isn't easy to really change a paradigm, to really change what for some reason was ingrained in us in the first seven years of our lives, the most formative years, or sometimes afterwards something very hostile happens it's not easy to change. So there's a massage going here. It's not that Pharaoh is so evil that he's not listening plague after plague. Pharaoh is trying to listen. It's a process. I wanted to share with you one last thing and then, oh, wow, it's nine o'clock, so I'll be brief with the other story I want to tell you. But I wanted to share with you one quick teaching. There's an argument at the end of the Torah portion. It says that once 
Pharaoh told Moses, please pray, pray for me. Moses prayed. The, it says that the, the hail did not hit the ground. What it seems to be, according to one opinion says, what it seems to be saying here is that the hail just froze and stayed in the sky. It didn't disappear. It didn't stop existing. It was there. And it says that there's another time in history that it was used. There's another opinion that says, no, even that which already formed and left heaven and was coming down to the ground, it stopped. It just disintegrated. It was gone. The Rebbe has a beautiful insight to what they're really arguing about. What is the power of teshuva? Can it undo the past? In other words, the hail that already left heaven, can it undo that? Or can it only stop for the present and the future? A very deep insight into what the power of teshuva is as God gave it to the nations of the world. And with this, let's wrap up. It's nine o'clock. I told you in the text message that we're going to talk about, can we see God? So I want to share with you a very interesting story. In the year 5666, we're now in 5771. This was in the year 5666. The Rebbe at that time was the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Sholem Dov Ber of Lubavitch. Now, there are two series of teachings that the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe gave that is known to be the hardest series. One is called 66 because it started on Rosh Hashanah 66 and it lasted for two and a half years. Every Shabbos that he was local in Lubavitch with the yeshiva, he kept on building that series. Every single Shabbos, about an hour and a half discourse, Shabbos after Shabbos, building and building and building. The second one, by the way, is the year 72, 5672. That started on Shavuos and went for five and a half years. Now, going to the 66 story. The fifth Lubavitch Rebbe at that time was joined in a group of other great Rebbes and leaders that were dealing with the government's decrees against the Jews. And one of these Rebbes needed the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe's advice on how to deal with a certain issue. So he sent his chassid to go to the, the little city of Lubavitch and in white Russia and Ask the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, ask the Lubavitch Rebbe this and this questions and bring me back the answer. Okay. He arrived for this Shabbos, Parshas Va'era, in the year 5666. As I shared with you, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe's discourses were already on that level of, of that series. Very, very hard. Literally splitting hairs in Kabbalah. And we learned it in Yeshiva. It's really beautiful. Now, so when the fifth of our Rebbe was notified that that Rebbe's chassid came to speak to him, he said, okay, now it's already close to Shabbos. You'll come in for the Malava Malka, the meal that we have after Shabbos saying goodbye to the Shabbos queen, the Shabbos king. Okay. No, it comes much of Shabbos and the chassid is allowed in to speak to the fifth of Rebbe. And the Bavitch Rebbe is sitting by the table and he tells his son who becomes the next Rebbe, which ends up being the father-in-law of our Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Lubavitch, he tells him, Yosef Yitzchak served tea. So he served the tea for his father and then for the chassid. 
And then the Rebbe, you know, he's going to start the conversation with words of Torah. That's what we need to start everything with. So he says, did you understand the, the mimer, the discourse I said yesterday, Friday night? And he answered, Rebbe, I'm sorry. I'm, these are total foreign concepts to me. We, we don't learn these type of things. So the Fiskabach Rebbe said, don't worry, no problem. Tell me a teaching of your Rebbe. So the Chassid said, my Rebbe taught me this. In the opening of this week's parsha, it says that God told Moses, Va'era el Abraham el Yitzchok vel Yaakov. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rashi in his commentary quotes, and he says, Va'era, he quotes the word from the, from the Torah portion, and he gives a one-word commentary. El ha'avos, two, two words, to the patriarchs, to the forefathers. So he said, as Rebbe asked, Rashi doesn't give commentary for no reason. We already finished with the student, the entire book of Genesis. In this Torah portion, last week's Torah portion itself, it says that God told Moses, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rashi knows that the student knows who Avram, Yitzhak, and Jacob is. So why is he saying, El Ha'avot, to the patriarchs? We know who Avram, Yitzhak, and Jacob is. Good question. And then he said like this, my Rebbe said that the word Avois means fathers, Abba. But there's also another word which could be with the same root, and that is the word Ava, Aleph, Vet, Hey, which means to want. The verse says, Kiloi Ava Lishmoya, they did not want to listen. So Ava means to want. And he said like this He said, Rashi is teaching the child, Va'eda, who does God appear to? El Ha'avot, those who want to see him. The fifth Lubavitcher turned around to his son, Yosef Yitzchak, did you hear this, the And he repeated the question and the answer. And I wondered when I heard the story, I wondered why did he have to repeat it? His son was there and they both heard it together. And as I was looking for the answer to that, I came across a teaching from our Rebbe. Our Rebbe said that in Lubavitch, the Rebbe's would repeat the Dvar Torahs of the Baal Shem Tov and, and the other teachings to make them Chabad teachings. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that the Baal Shem Tov and other Hasidim, they're more focused on faith. Their acceptance of the teachers of the, uh, the teachings of their Rebbe's is of faith absorbance. In Chabad, the Rebbe's tell us, yes, have faith, but now work your faith, intellectually, build, digest, understand. Hence, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe didn't want his son, Yosef Yitzchak, to receive this just as an abstract faith. He wanted his son, Yosef Yitzchak, to digest it, make it Chabad, wisdom, understanding, knowledge understand this in a practical, digestible way, not a belief. Oh, if you want to see God, you'll see God. You know those sayings, ask and it shall, it shall be given. No, work it, understand it, understand the process so that it becomes so real for you. And hence, we need to understand this. 
it sounds like such a beautiful new wave, lovey-dovey, God appears to those who want to see him. Oh, you don't see God? It's because you don't really want. No, 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 no. Let's be practical. God is communicating with us day in and day out, hour by hour. And we walk around complaining. How come God isn't giving me guidance? And the answer is because we refuse to see that coincidences is God's way of staying anonymous. There is no such thing as a coincidence. Everything you hear, everything you see, every person you meet, every single time that you arrive, whether you thought it was late or you thought it was on time or why or this, the wrong turns that we make in life. Every single one of them is a communication from God. But if you want, you can call it a coincidence. Thank you. Rabino Beauty 